Professor Halliday, can I ask, um, how does this area and this research inform uh, the science behind understanding climate change activities? Well, the, the same or similar isotopic tools that we use for sorting out the early history of the Earth can also be used for starting studying the recent history of the Earth. And just as you can trace different bits of, of planets back in time, you can also trace the recent history of ocean masses, and etc. And so much of the, un, our understanding of climate change is actually coming from what we call paleoclimate. And this includes um, determining the history of melting of the polar ice caps. Uh, it also includes studying how the biology in the oceans has reacted to changes in temperature and CO2 over time. Um, and it also involves um, basically getting some ideas of how ocean circulation has changed back through time. And people have been looking at this quite intensely. Nowadays, it also involves looking on the continents. So if you want to, I mean, one of the biggest issues we've got in facing climate change is not just what's going to happen in terms of temperature, but what's going to happen in terms of rainfall. And um, the climate models that we have, uh, which are used to try and predict what will happen in the future, um, tend to be, for reasons that are not entirely clear, uh, they don't seem to predict rainfall terribly well. And in certain parts of the Earth in particular, they don't seem to be able to predict it very well. And the reason for that isn't very clear. And it's, you know, of course, more effort needs to be, go needs to be put into higher resolution models. More effort needs to be done in terms, uh, put into understanding the physics behind rainfall and what's causing uh, rainfall in certain regions. But the other thing you can do is to actually use the record of rainfall to try and tell you what should happen if the temperature changes by a certain amount. So uh, one of my colleagues here at Oxford, Gideon Henderson uh, in particular, has been working on the history of climate change by looking at uh, speleothems, those are cave deposits, in China. So in China you get some enormous cave systems and some of the stalagmites and stalagmites are very large and they've grown at such a fast rate that you've got, you can actually resolve what's happening on a monthly basis right the way through the last 10,000 years. So this is fantastic high quality, high resolution records and the, the important thing about it is it provides, they can use the isotopes to say something about when rainfall changed in an area of the earth where it's quite hard to predict it from climate change modeling. And so we can see how monsoonal systems have changed uh, over time by doing this incredibly important research. So Gideon Henderson's research is really, really vital in that whole area. Similarly, uh, Ros Rickaby, who's in Earth Sciences, has been doing some amazingly important work on understanding what happens to the oceans and their biology. And not the macrofauna, but the plankton, things like that. Uh, what's happening to them as climate changes. And you can see this in the past record, how different systems have responded. And one of the biggest issues is that as we increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and increase the temperature of the surface of the ocean, does that mean that the oceans will take up carbon dioxide more or will they actually uh, start to release carbon dioxide? The oceans will become more acid as a result of carbon dioxide uh, 
be incorporated into uh, forming acid in the, in, in the oceans. Um, and so some of the carbonate shells that have existed and form you know, the main, main parts of the biomass basically will no longer be sustainable. They'll start to, uh, you'll start to get smaller shells. And so, uh, and that of course will lead to biological competition. And so certain species may well die out in response and other species will become dominant. And so all that understanding of the link between chemistry, biology, and the surface climate system is very poorly understood. And it's not just that, it's not just interesting, it's amazingly important because we worry about not knowing, you know, how much temperature is going to increase. But pretty much everybody is convinced it is going to increase and pretty much everybody is convinced it's driven by human effects. The worrying thing is that we, there are things we just don't know about what that will achieve. What will, what will it do to our, our Earth system? And is it possible that certain things that we haven't been able to predict, because they're not part of the model at all, uh, will happen? Um, because we just don't understand the science at the moment uh, in terms of what happens. What happens to the chemistry of the atmosphere as the temperature goes up? Uh, what, what, what will certain species, chemical species, do to uh, all kinds of life on the surface of the Earth? So there's a variety of things there that are a major priority for science. And Oxford's uh, very big in that area, and it's uh, also a very major part of the UK's science agenda. And we're keen to expand that whole area. So there's a, a large amount of interest, not just in earth sciences, but also physics and in other departments across the university, in exploring um, the earth system as a whole from the point of view of how it works, how these different parts interact with each other. So if you change one bit, what happens to the other bits? And those interfaces are where some of the biggest discoveries are probably going to be made in the future. And Oxford's a great place to do it because you've got not just got the people working on the science itself, you've also got the core disciplines of physics, chemistry, mathematics, biology, um, and chem uh, you know, and earth sciences. Uh, you've got all those people who can, and you've also got very strong computer modeling here. We've got all those people who can work at the interface between those subjects, but also bring in the brainy students who uh, choose Oxford to come to and can feed them into the whole process of learning and discovering how to actually use their ability to tackle really interesting but also challenging scientific issues for the future. So, so is, is Oxford fairly unique in being able to do such cross-disciplinary research? I think it's, well, I wouldn't say, it's certainly not where, I would say that it's ideally suited. Uh, I could also, you could also mark, make the case it's possibly the best place in the world. Uh, but you could also say that Oxford hasn't really recognized its potential as well as one would like to think. And so we have a lot of um, mainstream subjects still, like physics, chemistry, maths, zoology, uh, plant sciences. These things are, um, you know, to have all these subjects and to have them at a very, very high level of academic excellence is an amazingly important resource for a university. Um, but it also means that uh, they've basically, to some extent, evolved um, thinking about their own subjects, whereas a subject like climate crosses those subjects, you know, 
and you need to be working with different departments and engaging uh, with different departments. And so the last five, ten years, there's been an increasing tendency to do that and a realization that actually with all that academic strength, with the college system where you can basically build up discussions and support students through tutorials, and with the, um, uh, you know, the potential that's uh, being realized for uh, building big new research programs here, um, the Oxford's arguably one of the best places, if not the best place in the world, to do this kind of science. There's, a, there's another couple of other aspects to that should be mentioned. For the second year in a row, we've been the number one university in the United Kingdom in terms of external research funding. Uh, and most of that is going into science and medicine. And there's um, that growth in research funding is moving Oxford forward at quite an aggressive place, pace. Um, and we're keen to develop all kinds of new science areas. Uh, and a lot of them are going to be in these interface regions. So there's going to be a, a, a dramatic change in Oxford over the next few years associated with the development of those um, inter interfaces and uh, overarching issues, whether it's in energy, whether it's in sustainability issues, um, uh, whether it's in stuff to do with nanoscience, uh, quantum information, uh, or whether it's stuff to do with uh, some of our brilliant mathematicians who are doing some very, very clever theoretical work. Uh, that relates to all kinds of areas. Um, we've got phenomenal potential here, which we're starting to realize. There's been a terrific change in terms of uh, new buildings, new organizations, and a keenness to, an enthusiasm to engage, which is, um, you know, although Oxford's been a great university for many, many years, and always will be, uh, there's a sort of a fresh landscape developing, which I think makes it an extremely exciting place to come to right now. So if you're a young person uh, interested in a school, interested in science at the moment, would you recommend Oxford as a place where you might be able to tackle some of these challenges in your, in your career as you progress? Uh, well, definitely. But it's, it's, of course, but I mean, the, I think one of the things to think about is um, that science actually gives you phenomenal uh, ability to move around career-wise in the future. And, you know, if you, we've grown over the last uh, 50 years, in terms of undergraduate um, proportions, if you like, the mathematical, physical, and life sciences have grown from something like 17% or 18% of the undergraduates 50 years ago to now being about 30%. So roughly a third of the students who come to Oxford University are actually doing sciences and mathematics and engineering. Uh, so the whole university is shifting in that direction. The mathematics side, if you look at mathematics, statistics, computing, the mathematical subjects, they've grown from roughly 3% to 9%. So there's a serious, there's a lot of very clever kids doing some of the most difficult, challenging subjects who clearly recognize that Oxford's a good place to come to, to uh, utilize those skills. And they're right to do so for two reasons. One is because Oxford's a great university. The, the, the level of education that you get, the level of mentoring you get, uh, and is a fantastic experience that nearly all students go away from Oxford raving about it, which is why we have, we're, we're, we're at the top of the polls in terms of student satisfaction when students leave here. Uh, but the second thing is, uh, if you've got a strong science background, you can do all kinds of things. You have people who are 
you know, in the BBC, you have people who are in uh, the world's top financial uh, parts of the financial sector in London who got degrees in astrophysics. You know, and so the, it doesn't really, you know, getting a degree in science and mathematics gives you a phenomenal opportunity because it's quite clear you're clever, uh, you're, you're going to be able to think in a numerate way, which is really important for the future for all kinds of areas. And thirdly, one of the nice things about science is it, it teaches you to problem solve. And very often problem solve with, with information that's not complete. So earth sciences, for example, you've got to figure out how things must have worked in the past without anybody telling you. You've basically got to deduce it from incomplete data sets. And that skill set is phenomenally important from the point of view of business and management in the future. And so I think we can, we can say with a lot of confidence that a degree in science, a degree in or mathematics, uh, those kinds of skills uh, are going to serve you extremely well wherever you want to end up. We've just established the new Institute for Biomedical Engineering up at the Churchill campus. And although it's up at the hospital site, it's actually got engineers from our division down here uh, on the faculty up there and actually running it. And it's an example of how people have basically recognized that there are new ways we can do technology for saving lives and for curing diseases um, based here in the physical sciences. And a degree in the physical sciences, even if you want to do medicine eventually, Getting a degree in the physical sciences first could be extremely important for you from the point of view of enabling you to do some of the science that could really change the technology that's needed for the future in terms of saving lives or delivering, delivering drugs in a new way or whatever. So I'd urge people, even if they're thinking about those kinds of subjects, uh, there are opportunities for you very much here in the physical sciences. Earth sciences, I think, is you know my own subject, although I care about science generally, and I'm not too compartmentalized about which bits one should support. Earth Sciences does have some fantastic advantages as a subject, uh, because I think it stretches your imagination wonderfully. Um, the Earth Sciences department here has got mathematicians, chemists, physicists, biologists, as well as geologists, all working together trying to explore how the Earth works today and how it's worked in the past. It's the science that, that underpins a lot of our understanding of the climate system. And so it's immensely important for the future. But it's also concerned with resources, which is also a massive issue for the future, um, and the issue of origins, where we come from and why we're here, which basically, ultimately, everybody wants to understand something about. And as one of the top uh, science departments in the world, uh, it's a fantastic environment to come to. And the level of excitement, engagement that you get from the students, it's a very non-hierarchical department. Um, the students with the faculty and the, and the postdoctoral fellows, and you know, it's a wonderfully exciting place to be a part of. And I'd encourage anybody who's interested to, um, to get involved. And actually, the other thing about it is that in the same kind of way, a number of our people decide afterwards, after they've done the degree in earth sciences, they want to go off to the city. That's perfectly fine. It gives you a lot of the skills that you need for dealing with uh, a lot of tomorrow's issues in a completely different context. Thank you very much, Professor Halliday, for the enlightenment about such an exciting area of science. You're welcome.